Hi, I'm Millie Thomas, an eating disorder recovery coach. We've created this podcast to raise awareness about all types of eating disorders and help dispel some of the many myths and stigma that unfortunately still surround them. It's hard for me to pinpoint where and when my eating disorder began. It feels like it's like a drug. You know it's bad because you know like this is hurting me but it somehow makes you feel like you're doing something right. He just couldn't sense that I was hopeless. You get to that point where you just you just don't know what to do. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. I began rereading my diaries and actually it enabled me to grieve for the little girl that got horribly lost and I just wanted to take her hand and help her get get out of that terribly dark forest that she was lost in for so many years. You're enough, you're more than enough, and you will always be enough. My eating disorder started at seven. It's been a long and at times slow process. <sighs> the eating disorder's in charge, and your daughter's not there. There is hope at endad.org.au. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have the amazing Megan Bray with me. Megan is an accredited practicing dietitian. She has a Bachelor of Exercise Nutrition Sciences and a Master of Dietetic Studies. Megan is a strong advocate for recovery, non-diet nutrition and body acceptance. She believes empathy, compassion and expertise are the foundation of supporting individuals with eating concerns. Megan has undertaken research in the eating disorder field and is currently completing her PhD. She also works as a peer mentor with individuals pursuing recovery and is active in the pro-recovery social media space. You just do a little bit, don't you? Yeah, that sounds a lot when you actually <laughs> articulate it. Um, it doesn't feel it doesn't feel that overwhelming, but yes. All of well, there's a lot of different things. different things, a lot of variety of sort of areas, which is awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think I wear a lot of different hats having lived experience and then training as a health professional and then spending a few years in the private practice domain and realising I wanted to do research. So it's just funnelled out from there, I suppose. Yeah. I would like to begin with you giving our listeners a bit of an insight into your own eating disorder journey. Yeah, okay. So I lived with an eating disorder for, I guess, the better part of my teenage years and into my 20s. Um, It's so interesting when I talk about it because it is a little hard to describe and I know sometimes this is where I put my health professional hat on and I want to start talking about diagnoses. Um, And I guess when I reflect on my eating disorder experience, I spanned all of the different diagnoses across my experience. Um, And Despite that, I felt the same the whole way through. So there was a part of me that felt simultaneously too much and not enough, whether I was living with bulimia nervosa or anorexia nervosa or atypical anorexia nervosa. Um, I know for myself, it really aligned with underlying anxiety as well. So for me, that was a really big part of my journey. It was acknowledging that I actually didn't know how to cope with my anxiety I didn't know how to cope with some really big changes in my life and for whatever reason controlling my weight shape size and my food stood out to me as the only known coping mechanism I had at the time. Um, I guess unfortunately it ended up creating a lot more problems than it solved but it took me took me a fair few years to realize how else I could manage my big thoughts and my big emotions without turning to an eating disorder. And how did how did that come about? How did you learn to use those other things rather than your eating disorder as a coping mechanism? Um, well, I went to lots of therapy. So I'm a big advocate for working with psychologists. Um, I was really grateful to remain connected with an awesome group of friends who actually had really good coping strategies. I did have some other kind of adult role models in my life who were able to show me what it was like to live with anxiety and manage it. But for me, it was honestly years and years and years of therapy and taking two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. And every time I took a step back, I had to kind of 
reflect on what was it that led to this step back. And I would then, I suppose, take that to therapy and say, okay, we were going well on this front, but now this thing's popped up. So how can we navigate that? So for me, it was very much, it was very much diving deep into the underlying issues as well. And I know for me that may have initially felt like body image related things. It might have felt uh, there was a bit to do with family and friendships and fitting in. And then under that, you know, was my layer of anxiety and not good enough and perfectionism. And then, you know, I think there was even layers still that even more recently, I've only just kind of come to realize I needed to talk about. So what I mean there is um, maybe past life experiences that I didn't realize Mm. were actually such a pivotal part in the development of my eating disorder. Um, So yeah, it's been, it's been quite a journey. It's been quite a journey. That diving deep piece is so important because I know for me, I did years of therapy where we did the surface stuff Mm. and I think I was very good at not allowing probably therapists to even touch the deep, deep stuff. Yes. And it's not until you do that real inner work that you can actually then come out the other side and not have those things, as you say, pop up all the time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And I think I know for me doing the surface level stuff was – enough for a time, like in the sense that it helped contain my eating disorder in many ways. It actually, a lot of the, so I'll use the specific term. So I started with psychologists where we were doing a lot of sort of CBT, like really cognitive work. And then we moved into something called acceptance and commitment therapy, where we were doing a lot of work about acceptance and change. And both of those two were actually enough for me to recover from my eating disorder. But it was actually after the fact that I sort of still realized there were these underlying past experiences that I think maybe were popping up more in work or relationships Mm. and I needed to go back and do that work too. And the reason I kind of mentioned that is because I think it can be so disheartening to think, wow, I went through the recovery from my eating disorder and there's still more work for me to do. But for me, it's actually been really freeing to continue to do that work on myself and know that I now am more content at work, for example, or, you know, to have really thriving relationships. And I know that it's something that I'll continue to do for the rest of my life happily is to dive deep on whatever keeps popping up. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's great. What, what did it feel like to have an eating disorder? Um, awful. <laughs> <laughs> yep. No, I, to be more specific, I really remember the physical sensations. Mm. And what I mean by that is, I was always, and even, you know, I'm an energetic adult, but I recall being this incredibly energized child that was, you know, bouncing around all the time. And then I remember after developing my eating disorder, I just was flat and fatigued. I, Mm. my mood was always low. I remember like my body used to hurt a lot. Like I would just be, I remember sitting in school or even lying in the bed and I remember feeling the muscle aches. Um... And for me, that took a lot away from me because I also used to be um, like a reasonably strong athlete and it didn't take very long before I just wasn't able to do that anymore. So I really remember the physical side of things. I remember feeling really, really out of control as well, which ironically, you know, it was, I guess, ironic because I went into it seeking control. I thought that by having control over my food and my weight and my shape, would make me feel in control in other areas of my life. But I do not recall ever feeling more chaotic than I did in my eating disorder. Um, And I guess the other thing was the big shifts in my ability to maintain relationships and friendships. So I really noticed that I was a lot more irritable and it was really hard for me to actually be present and engaged in my friendships. And I'm super grateful to a lot of my friends who actually stuck with me through it because I still have some best friends that I had when I was a kid, you know, before developing my eating disorder. But they'll be the first to admit that it was, you know, a little difficult to be my <laughs> my best pretty, friend yeah. at that point in time. And I know I lost a lot of friends across that period as well. So for me, there was the physical, um, there was the emotional, and then there was really some significant relationship relational struggles that I had 
Yeah. 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 Amazing. Your friends. I just think it's so wonderful, isn't it? When you know who true friends are who stuck with you through thick and thin and are still there going, Hey, we're just happy to have you back. Oh, absolutely. And honestly, like if I think about some of the pivotal moments, like it was those people and like, I'll, I'm getting married next year and you know, they will be bridesmaids at my wedding. And so it is so beautiful to me that we can go through hell and they stay with you as you're going through it and you can come out the other side and be stronger than ever and go on to do those really beautiful milestones together as well. Absolutely. It's so <laughs> special. It is very special. Were there moments where you felt hopeless during your journey? Um, yes. And I think the reason I say that is because I didn't envision it lasting as long as it did. And I've always considered myself – like as much as I said, I always felt too much and simultaneously not enough. There is another part of me that, you know, believed in my strength and my determination. And I really used to get confused by the fact that it was still taking me a lot of time to get through my eating disorder. So I think there were times where I thought it was not going to be possible that I'd ever fully recover. And that was a message I was told, you know, after a number of years, I was told that I would continue yeah. to you know, manage this for the rest of my life. Um, But ultimately I was able to reach a place where it no longer affects me in any way, shape or form. So I definitely felt hopeless at times, but I think there was always this kind of little part in the back of me that was like, just keep, like, just keep trying. Like, just keep going. Um, Just keep taking those two steps forward even if you take one step back because eventually something will clock into gear and it and it did um it all started to come together thank goodness because we've got you here contributing to the space now which is amazing yes just keep <laughs> swimming very just lucky. keep swimming uh have you got any lasting physical implications from your eating disorder no um that's not entirely true um my teeth took a bit of a battering and I think I spent a lot of um, money with a dentist over the years, but I have been really, really lucky. Um, I have no physical implications at all whatsoever, which I just think is incredible. Like the body continues to amaze me. Um, I have worked really hard over the years to gain that back, like in terms of, you know, caring for my bone health and, um, I guess making sure that I eat a wide variety of things. I see doctors regularly to check up on iron. Like I, I'm always on top of that. But yeah, I'm really pleased to say that all is well. <laughs> Our bodies are incredible, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. I mean, and like that is kind of what attracts me to being a dietitian as well. Like the the physical changes I see people make and how their body adapts and how their body works so incredibly hard to protect them even though their eating disorder is so strong just blows my mind um and I know you know I know people hate their bodies I know people have a really tough time kind of accepting it but when I think about how hard the body works to keep people safe and alive every day I'm like "Mm, you gotta have some respect for it though because that is like pretty damn impressive (laughs) oh absolutely have you come to a place of acceptance with your body now yeah like how yes. did you get there? Ah, uh, yeah. Time for one, <laughs> you know, like I think I think if my eating disorder and, you know, recovery journey spanned, you know, 10 years, it's been even longer than that to come to a place of accepting my body. Um I guess I guess I've kind of focused on looking after my body as a way to accept my body. And what I mean by that is like, am I eating regularly? Am I eating enough? Am I getting enough sleep? Do I move my body in a joyful way? Um, Am I, you know, well connected and able to socialize with my friends? And there's been a big part of me that thinks if I do that, like if I treat my body with respect, then ultimately however it looks and however it lands must be how it's meant to be. So that's really, really helped me accept my body. I think another big part is developing life outside of eating issues and body image issues. So for me, like, I don't I don't actually spend a great deal of time looking at my body. Like I put my clothes on every morning and I'm and I'm out the door. Because for me, I'm really interested in whether it's getting to work or socializing or 
you know, just enjoying my life. So body image has actually taken a, a real back seat. And look, I'm sure if I spent a lot of time still looking in the mirror, there'd be a part of my brain that'd be like, oh, you know, like, are you sure you're okay with this? But it just doesn't, hey, I don't. And it just doesn't take up any space anymore because I know that in order to live the life I want to live I need to look after my body in a very specific way or I can't ask it to do all I ask it to do um and I'm like I'm conscious of the fact that you know when we say body acceptance doesn't mean we have amazing body image days every day of the week um and I'm sure across my lifetime I'm going to need to continue to pay attention to my relationship with my body Um, I consider eating disorder recovery and loving your body a really active approach. Like it's not something that I'm like, I'm done now. I'm never going to think about it again. I am always conscious of doing the things that I know have really maintained my eating disorder recovery and my relationship with my body. And so I know I'll never stop doing that. So I also feel quite confident that I'm going to be able to accept and love my body for the rest of my life even though I know it's going to change yeah Hmm. what impact if any did social media have on your journey um probably not as much as these days and the reason I'd say that is because it just didn't exist as much when I developed my eating disorder honestly I think it was even before the time of MySpace. <laughs> oh my goodness, MySpace. Wow. <laughs> with, with your top eight friends. Um, yes. Yes. Goodness. So for me, I think I'm talking more like peers and perhaps magazines and some online stuff, but perhaps more kind of mainstream media. Um, I do mm. think about social media a lot these days and think, gosh, like what a minefield that must be for people yeah. these days. Um You've got it at your fingertips 24-7. And I know for me there was a lot of, say, comparison to people at school. But, like, I'd go home at the end of the day and, you know, do my homework and play some sport and go to bed. And so I only had comparison during those kind of six or seven hours a day at school. Whereas I think about now people have essentially, you know, 24-7 access to comparison. And not only that, it's, I guess, comparison that looks nothing like real life you know they're constantly seeing images that are photoshopped and edited so heavily that it doesn't look anything like what the person looks like in the real world um so I guess long answer to a simple question it it probably didn't affect it as much as people these days for sure I'm so grateful that I did not develop mating disorder on the age of social media I just yeah because like you I had to go look at those magazines and stuff yeah it wasn't in the palm of my hand definitely and I actually felt you know weirdly grateful for the fact that I wasn't involved in any sort of eating disorder communities and sort of online communities or anything like that like I didn't know about certain websites or I didn't know about anything like that so for me Again, I think I was very lucky because there was just so many avenues of comparison or perhaps, you know, learning different things about eating disorders that I just literally never came across, which also speaks to me about the fact that, you know, like I know for my eating disorder, I truly believe a big part of it was heritable, like genetic, um, and related to kind of other life events rather than just seeing images of specific bodies because that probably wasn't the primary thing I was exposed to before developing an eating disorder even though I know that's a massive trigger for other people Mm. yeah did your own eating disorder journey influence your decision to become a dietitian it almost influenced my decision not to become a dietitian (laughs) (laughs) And, and the reason I say that um is because I went to a careers advisor in grade 10 or 11 or whenever they make you do it. And I said, I really want to be a dietitian. And it was flagged that I had an eating disorder at the time. And, you know, the person was very much like, do we think this is a good idea? You know, is it coming from a healthy place? And on reflection, I think I was able at the time to say, no, I think that's actually coming from quite a disordered place. And I completely changed all of my senior subject preferences. And I went down the law humanities path and I was very convinced I was going to do economics and law at university. 
And then I got to university and I did a year of it and I realized that I hated it. And on the way back to the bus stop every day, I would pass the like the dietetics or the human movements building. And it always just got me thinking. And I remembered I really wanted to, I guess I had this idea that I wanted to go back and learn about nutrition, but in a way that was really healthy and holistic and actually helpful in terms of people's relationship with food. And I was really nervous about changing because I I wondered if it was going to be good for me or whether it was going to kind of nudge me back into old behaviors. But I started it and I just absolutely loved it. Like I I thrived and and yeah, and then I guess in the end it probably did propel me on. Because from day one, I was actually constantly asking lecturers for mental health placements and I had expressed to my lecturers and sort of supervisors that I really wanted to work or at least kind of get a sense of what it would be like to work in the eating disorder space. And there was a part of me that was more like, just go and see what it's like for you, as in go in and see if you find it you know, interesting and rewarding and see if you find it triggering in any way. Like I just wanted to kind of test the waters and then I was lucky enough. I did some mental health placements across my master's and then I also did a research project in eating disorders in my master's and I just kind of fell in love. Like I was interviewing um, patients on a ward and it just felt really right and it just felt like I had just found my place and then ever since then I basically just stuck on that pathway forever and ever and ever and ever and now I will never leave. (laughs) It's incredible how things play out isn't it? Yeah it it is because I didn't envision that this would be my life. I think sometimes when I talk to people from school and say oh I'm doing this now they're like oh that totally makes sense what a great job for you Um, because I I think a lot of people witnessed my journey Um, but I probably didn't see that for myself Um, so it I I, it's it's one of those times where I feel like the universe was kind of looking out for me um, just in the sense that I go to work and I love it like I couldn't envision myself working with a better bunch of people so I feel very grateful thank you universe (laughs) (laughs) now you talk about being a non-diet dietitian Mm-hmm. So tell me more about that. What does that mean? Um, so ultimately, non-diet dietitians don't prescribe diets, um, believe it or not. Um, to go a little deeper on that, it's we don't believe in restrictive diets um, or denying hunger, denying cravings as a way to achieve health and well-being. So what we do instead is we focus on optimizing health behaviors. So that might mean are you eating regularly? Are you eating enough? Are you having a wide variety of foods? Are you able to include all foods and make sure that you enjoy them? Um, can you practice mindful eating? Like there might be sort of specific considerations for each person, but I guess a really simple way of describing it is it's more about what we add in as opposed to what we kind of take out. Um, and it's meant to be life enhancing rather than restrictive in any way. I love that life enhancing. Yes. Yes. Such a (laughs) nice way to put it. What would your advice be to people who are newly recovered and wanting to study dietetics? Mm. Is that a wise idea? Does it have the potential to be triggering? Um, It definitely has the potential to be triggering. Um, It definitely does. And I guess the reason for that is, is there are different types of dietitians or at least in your training you do have to go very specifically into the ins and outs of food. So you you end up knowing the itty-bitty bits of science and nutrition science. So I think if you weren't 100% solid in your recovery, you would have the potential to find it a bit kind of shaky. Although on the flip side of that, I know a lot of people, myself included, that when I learned the nuances of nutrition science I remember thinking man I can't believe I ever feared food like yeah yeah it's just absolutely crazy to me now that there was a time in my life where I feared cake whereas now through the lens of nutrition science I realized that you know there is absolutely no reason to fear cake yeah um so what I would say to people is I often I often encourage people to have some time away from 
focusing on food 24-7 before they actually come back to it because when you're living with an eating disorder, you're focusing on food, you're thinking about food 24-7 and I think people really deserve the opportunity once they've recovered to just live a little bit of life where they're not totally fixated on that because as a dietitian, you spend your day every day talking about food. And perhaps, you know, two years down the track, if you think, no, this is 100% still what I want to do, I would encourage people to go back and do it. Um, And like I never – I know – I do know a lot of people who go directly into dietetics and I um, have seen it work both ways. Mm. So I think it's hard to give a hard and fast answer, but I always encourage people to really reflect on their own circumstance and, and potentially make sure they've had a little bit of time with life without an eating disorder and fixated on food before diving into a career that is literally all about food. Yeah, absolutely. How integral do you think your lived experience is to your ability to be able to connect with your clients? I think for me personally, it plays a massive role in my capacity to connect with clients. Um, I believe that there are hundreds slash thousands of clinicians out there who don't have a lived experience who are also excellent. But I know for me, There is a part of me that sits there with clients when they're telling me how hard it is to change and their fears around, you know, taking those steps towards recovery. Mm. There's a big part of me that just can absolutely sit with that and absolutely acknowledge it. And, you know, I don't feel any sense of frustration or I can't understand this because I remember what it was like to feel so unsure about that process. Um, Yeah, so I think for me it's more to do with empathising how difficult change is. Yes. Um, For sure, for sure. I completely, completely agree with you because I think having having that ability to go, I get how difficult this is. I remember being there, Mm. sitting in that chair and fearing the magicians out of what what I'm now telling you to do. Yeah, for sure. Because like not maybe all, not all of my clients would necessarily know I have the lived experience. So – it doesn't always come up in session. And I suppose that's because, you know, I, I'm in session as their dietitian. So sometimes they'll know, um, particularly if they're kind of embedded in the recovery community or follow me on Instagram where I do time from time to time discuss the fact that I have a lived experience or if they've been kind of referred in via someone who knows I have a lived experience. Um, but there may be times where it doesn't even come up. But I know for me, I think it changes the way in which I'm talking with people and really empathizing. Um, Whereas I know for some other clients, the fact I have a lived experience is, you know, particularly powerful for them because they're able to kind of see someone who's gone on to recover, who's living, you know, a very normal, quote unquote, normal life. Um, And, you know, I don't think we see a lot of that. Like I don't think we see a lot of people who go on to recover who just, you know, get jobs and have friends and travel and, you know, do all that kind of stuff. We are often hearing about people who are still living with eating disorders. And I think that comes from, you know, the stigma that still surrounds talking openly about your lived experience. I know for me there have been health professionals who have really queried why I would be open about that. Yeah. Um, and I do understand where they're coming from. But for me, I think speaking openly about having a lived experience really works to shift shame and I don't want to be ashamed about my past and I certainly don't want my clients to feel ashamed about the experience they've had so the reason why I'm so open is is in an effort to shift the shame that surrounds living with an eating disorder and to role model what recovery can be which is super super important yes exactly because we do not see enough of it yeah absolutely I couldn't agree more do you believe that a dietitian is an essential part of a treatment team for someone who is in eating disorder recovery? Um, yes. Like, yeah, absolutely. Um, there will be some clients who will be able to work with, say, a psychologist or a GP and they won't need the input of a dietitian. Um, but, you know, when we think about where the research sits at the moment, where all the evidence lies, we should be looking for eating disorder teams that are um, working really collaboratively and closely um, with similar treatment approaches and it should include a doctor, a psychologist and a dietitian at a minimum. So that's actually 
kind of the topic of my PhD is looking at those interprofessional teams. Um, we know sometimes people, uh, they see all three team members, but those team members might not actually be on the same page. So the goal in our system really should be working towards a place where teams are very collaborative and integrated, um, you know, where the patient is also a really active member of the team because that tends to be what facilitates really good outcomes. Um, and the role of the dietitian is about, depends where someone's at, but, you know, we're going to be making sure that they are medically and physically stable. Um, and then as treatment progresses, we will be, you know, looking at someone's relationship with food. So are they able to eat all foods and challenge their fear foods? Are they able to eat socially? Um, are they able to be flexible and spontaneous in the way that they approach their diet? So, yes, I'm totally biased, but the evidence supports it. So <laughs> I'll say a big yes about dietitians. And I think what you've just said about the fact of multidisciplinary teams working together and all being on the same page for clients yeah. and the client being an active member treatment team I cannot say it strongly enough that I ha we see it we see it time yeah. and time again that that is where the highest efficacy is because well it's just it's a no-brainer really but it just doesn't happen nearly enough no no and and I think the benefits come from the fact that you know the person living with an eating disorder is then receiving the same message from every front so they're not getting confused um also to everyone's kind of on top of their bit of, you know, the team. Yes. Um, so everyone's able to kind of look at it from their different lens and make sure that, you know, we are tracking towards recovery. And, yeah, it is an incredibly important part to make sure that the client really has a voice in treatment and is treated, you know, as an equal member of the team. I think we have real, some real sort of systemic barriers to making that work in the sense that, you know, it's it's much easier if you work under the same roof as the psychiatrist and the psychologist, but that isn't always kind of easily set up in the outpatient setting. Um, maybe some people get to access that, but other people might not because there's long wait lists. So I think, you know, it's about clinicians knowing more that that is the way we should be practicing and then figuring out ways on a systemic level to make sure that clinicians are actually able to set up teams like that um, to effectively work together. Mm, absolutely. Have you found it helpful as a dietitian to have your clients work with recovery coaches? Yeah, so I think recovery coaches and people with lived experience are a really crucial part of the team. They, they offer a lens that you can't really offer as a professional. And I know we've talked about this a lot, like you – you communicate with clients at lots of different times of the day. You can be there to provide meal support. You know, they're able to call you kind of when they need that support. And yeah. that's really not how, say, my practice is set up. Like my clients are really only able to see me in that session. Um, and, you know, if we've planned something else for the week or for the fortnight. Um, so I think, you know, that, that support that can come more frequently is particularly helpful from someone who's been there and come through it. I think recovery coaches, like every profession, it works best when the approaches are integrated. So I love it personally when I have, you know, I know we share clients together. So where there's um, a psychologist, a dietitian, a recovery coach, a GP and a psychiatrist who are all in collaboration, I do think that's where recovery coaches work the best. And I also find it really pleasing to hear that recovery coaches are being more actively included in the inpatient space as well. Yes. Like I think that's really, really incredible because inpatient is often a place where you can get that really collaborative tight-knit team because you're working in the same place. Um, so absolutely, I think there's a really growing need for recovery coaches. We know that um, in kind of the broader mental health space, recovery coaches or peer workers, lived experience, mentors – they're used all of the time and I think it's just taking a bit more for it to kind of filter through to the eating disorder space and you know I think Australia is still yet to have good pathways for people to get trained like I know you trained overseas or well you know via overseas so I think there are still things to consider in terms of how we can make sure recovery coaches in Australia can get access to really good hands-on training. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, you're a big advocate for health at every size. Can you explain to our listeners exactly what that is and how it influences the work that you do? Yeah, for sure. So health at every size is a approach to health and well-being where we talk about the pursuit of health behaviors. Um, so non-diet nutrition, I guess, is the nutrition arm of health at every size. Um, health at every size isn't healthy at every size, which is one of the kind of big misconceptions. In health at every size, we focus on a really respectful, holistic approach to care where we might, you know, from a nutrition perspective, be focusing on all of those things we talked about before. We want to make sure that people get access to kind of timely medical interventions that aren't stigmatizing. So we know that people living in certain types of bodies, particularly larger bodies, will face a lot of stigma. So we, as health practitioners, don't use weight as a marker for well-being. We'll be focusing on other things. Are we talking sleep? Are we talking this person yeah, needs some kind of medical interventions? Are they accessing a good psychologist? We try and look at it from different angles rather than using weight as a marker for progress. That's, I guess, the crux of health at every size. It's such, it's such an important philosophy. Yeah, and it is health enhancing. So like one of the misconceptions is that Hayes is kind of anti-health, um, which is just the craziest thing to me. What it is is about pursuing health in a way that doesn't dehumanise and stigmatise individuals if they don't fit into what the medical system perceives as kind of, you know, the norm, um, yeah. which is incredibly important. We hear people who, say, present to services – with you know pain and they get sent away with a diet like and ultimately what they needed was investigations for their pain so when we come through what we call a weight-centric lens we often miss a lot of underlying things that we need to consider for people so it's just essentially moving weight away from the equation and looking at what's left for a person Often in eating disorder recovery, people can think that they've recovered when really they've slipped into orthorexia. How do you navigate that with clients? Yeah, it's really quite common, you know, because I think I think for me as a dietitian, my markers, I, I always talk about the RAVES approach, which I'll credit Shane Jeffrey for that, um, where RAVES is an acronym that stands for regularity, adequacy, variety, eating socially, and spontaneity. And when we talk through that in session – You'll often find that people who've slipped into orthorexia are able to eat regularly. They may even be able to eat adequately. So they're eating, you know, three meals, two to three snacks every day. They're eating enough overall energy. They're taking in a wide variety of nutrients. But when it comes to variety, they have a very low list of acceptable foods or they can only, you know, eat within a specific narrow window of choices. When it comes to eating socially, they'll often find it um, – very, very difficult to go out and do that. Um, and in terms of flexibility and spontaneity, they'll tend to be you know, very rigid in their choices. Mm. So when we unpack it like that, often they can identify, yeah, actually I'm not able to do these things. Um, and I know it often can come from a good place like or a, a good place, I suppose, but I guess the issue is that diet culture – encourages orthorexia in a way like in the sense that you know we now live in this world where whole foods are kind of the be all and end all but what we forget to talk about is the fact that it's perfectly appropriate to have some cake or some takeout alongside your whole foods um so it's something that i will actively bring up with clients i'll actively kind of work to draw out of them that they do still have some rules and rigidity around food and often the way we do that is by talking about how it impacts their life and most people are kind of able to say, oh, no, I wouldn't be able to go and eat there with my friends or mm. it was so-and-so's birthday and I couldn't have the cake. And we sort of start there and then we dive into it a little bit more. What are your views on veganism and eating disorder recovery? Uh -huh. Also another, you know, very big topic. I understand that people – pursue veganism for ethical and environmental mm. reasons like I fully respect and acknowledge that what we do know is that there are a massive amount of people with eating disorders who are also vegans um, a lot more than the percentage of people who 
don't have eating disorders. We know that a lot of the time the two will overlap. So the eating disorder will develop at the same time as veganism will come on to the agenda. Um, we also know it's particularly difficult to go through refeeding and re-nourishment on a vegan diet. And the reason for that is it's a very high fiber diet. Um, and sometimes the foods aren't overly energy dense. So in recovery, people tend to have a lot of tummy problems. And then when you're trying to give them the amount of nutrition someone needs to refeed when it's super high fiber and they need a, a really big volume of it, it almost becomes impossible to give someone the nutrition that they need. I also think um, it can be really problematic in the sense that it gives the eating disorder an opportunity to continue to maintain some of its rules. So often I like to unpack that and ask people where the overlap sits and, you know, sometimes we'll make a choice or often we'll make a choice to put veganism on hold until they have been recovered for a number of years and then we they can reconsider it down the track. So my preference is for people to move away from veganism because from a nutritional perspective, it's, you know, the most holistic way for them to get better in a physical and nutritional way. It's common for people with eating disorders to develop gut problems and continue <laughs> to struggle with them post-recovery. Have you got any tips on how to navigate this? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So – you know, fun fact, 98% of people with eating disorders have functional gut disorders. So it is very much the norm. Um, and recovery from an eating disorder, so I, I will have said these words a million times today, eating regularly every three to four hours, you know, having three meals and two to three snacks, having all the different food groups is the best way for you to start to get your gut moving again. Because in the context of restriction, essentially your body is powering down. Like it thinks, oh gosh, you know, we're not getting enough food in. We need to do away with some systems that are, I guess, not essential. So it'll say, oh, that's okay. We can kind of slow down the gut. So that's where people will get constipated. They might get bloating. They might get cramps. And the best way for us to reverse that is to be giving your body the food that it needs in order to thrive. And that will prompt digestion. We do sometimes see that, you know, people have some other leftover bits at the end of recovery but that's where you'd work with a dietitian on an individual basis to kind of figure out what that is most of the time a lot of it resolves just through doing recovery yes <laughs> now binge eating disorder is much more common than people realize and often people can be in denial about it being a problem for listeners out there who are struggling with binge eating but are yet to seek help what would be your advice that binge eating disorder is a very real and valid diagnosis and no less valid than anorexia or bulimia. I think, you know, we have this unfortunate view of eating disorders where, you know, someone with anorexia comes to mind when you think about eating disorders. And we know binge eating disorder is actually far more common than eating um, than anorexia. And we know that binge eating disorder is actually far more common than anorexia nervosa and we know that we have really, really, really good treatment outcomes when people seek help for it. So, And they're characterised by the same thing. Like Often there's lots and lots of heavy restriction and then it will be followed with binge eating. There'll be issues with self-esteem or anxiety or maybe a past history of trauma. So that eating disorder is equally as valid as any other and I encourage people to reach out to a service that says they work with binge eating disorder. I would also recommend that you align with a haze orientated practitioner if you're someone who lives in a larger body, because that means that when you go through your binge eating disorder treatment with a haze practitioner, weight will not be kind of front and center of the discussion, which is, you know, really, really important because we want to make sure your treatment providers aren't making you feel any more shamed about your body and your size. Absolutely. We live in such a diet culture, saturated society, where we are constantly bombarded with messages in the media regarding food and our bodies. What's your advice for how to navigate that? I know that's a really big yeah. question. <laughs> well, no. Um, I think, firstly, it's decreasing your access to a lot of it. Like, if you know yes. that you're actively following lots of diet culture stuff on Instagram or Facebook or TikTok or whatever – you need to actively unfollow it because ultimately it will just be popping up yep. every minute of the day. Um, I think there is a place for accepting 
that it will continue to exist um, and learning to focus on what you know to be right for your body um, because you're always going to come up against so-and-so who's dieting or the latest phase. But ultimately we need to come back to, well, for my body, you know, I need to eat regularly, I need to eat enough, I need to eat a wide variety of foods. And we ultimately know that diets don't work like from the research perspective, the majority of people who diet end up either regaining lost weight or stopping adhering to the diet. So often I kind of encourage people to just skip that step and never jump on the diet to begin with. I think another one is putting boundaries in place. So like actively saying to friends and loved ones, I would really appreciate it if we don't have discussions about diets or body. Yeah. Um, but I think – yeah, those two ones is probably shutting down access to the content and cultivating a body positive or non-diet environment. So really letting people know or fostering friendships where you know that that friend just doesn't care about weight, shape and size. Or It diet. makes such a difference who you surround yourself with. It's huge difference. Totally. To, yeah. Like I think about my group of friends, like nobody diets, like nobody talks about weight loss. Nobody, yeah. nobody sits there and bashes their body and – Sometimes I forget how lucky I am to have that now, but I also know it's an active process. Like all of us have Completely. kind of really made an effort to not do that. Um, I know I've obviously had really open conversations with people about how I'm not okay with talking about those kinds of things. So, and it, and it probably took years to cultivate looking back at it, but now there's not a single person that's close to me that I would call and be met with that kind of chat. And I don't follow it on Instagram. I'm not really interested in, you know, following that on TikTok or Facebook or anything like that. So there's a lot less of an opportunity for it to affect me. Yes. Yeah. 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 I'm often talking to clients about the fact that food has no moral value. Um, What would be your advice to people who are trying to move away from labeling foods as good and bad? So I guess it often starts with noticing how often you do it. Like a lot of people have this kind of automatic playlist in their head, labeling this is good, labeling this is bad, um, and they don't actually realize how problematic that is. Um, In treatment, we often go through steps where people challenge their fear foods. And what we know is that the more people actually confront those fear foods, the less anxiety provoking they are. We often talk about the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, all food has its place in a healthy diet. So some of that is going to be particularly important for nourishing our body. Other bits sort of, you know, nourish our mind. Some foods we have for taste, some foods we have for, you know, satiety and fullness. And sometimes we have certain foods because they give our body a specific nutrient. So we want to make sure that we have some, you know, sources of iron or, have enough carbohydrates for energy. So we start to kind of talk about food in all of the different ways and recognize that nutrition is all about context. Like it's not possible to label this food as bad and this food as good because you are missing (laughs) 99.9% of what is actually relevant when it comes to food if you do that. Yeah, that's a really, really good way of putting it. Mm. What are some of the diet culture messages that frustrate you the most? Oh, gosh, where do we begin? Um... Intermittent fasting really gets me. Yes. I just – I'm it's everywhere. Yeah, it's everywhere at the moment. I think that's why it gets me. Um, I think it also gets me because they talk about fasting being helpful to reset your gut and a few other things. And I'm like, well, you know, we do have breaks between meals. That's why we have a couple of hours yep. between meals. We sleep at night. That also that also works. Um, so – and I think fasting is an inherently disordered behaviour. Like you cannot be skipping meals and it sort of not be disordered. So I think mm. for me that's a really, really big one. Um, the other one is anything that cuts out entire food groups or nutrients. So I do have yes. a really tough time with, say, low-carbohydrate or keto diets, particularly because unless you are a child with epilepsy, because that is about <laughs> the only cohort in which keto is helpful um, – there is really good evidence to say that our brains need carbohydrate, our muscles mm. need carbohydrate. Uh, we don't do well when we do not have carbohydrate. And I know there will be people who say, oh, it's worked for me. But when we look at the big body of evidence, mm. people don't stick to it and it doesn't have good long-term outcomes. So that's probably a big one. I'm, I'm a very pro-carb person. 
I also sometimes joke that I'm an undercover agent for the dairy industry because I think it is really <laughs> underrated and I get really upset for the dairy industry that, um, you know, we've demonized just kind of regular cow's milk. It's an awesome source of protein and calcium and it's really cheap and accessible. I am all about the cow's milk. Yeah. Like I just love cow's yeah. milk. I don't like any of the alternative ones. I just want my cow's yeah. milk. Yeah, totally. And I get like, you know, if you're intolerant, I, I get the reasons why some people can't have it, but I think there's a lot of people out there not having cow's milk when it would just be such a simple nourishing thing mm. to have. I know a lot of my clients think I'm particularly weird because like sometimes in session rather than bringing in a glass of water, they'll see a glass of milk sitting there and they call me insane. But like it's just such a simple thing to grab. Um, oh, I love my glasses of milk. Yeah. I like, yeah, I'm all for it. Warm <laughs> milks, cold milks. Exactly. I like, like ice cold milk, warm milks. I just love them. Exactly. Um, there is such a variety of different qualifications people can mm-hmm. attain when it comes to nutrition, which can lead to people thinking that they're getting advice from a reputable source when in fact it's actually not. What do people need to be wary of and what should they look for to mitigate the chance of them being led astray? Yes. So ultimately, I would be checking to make sure someone is university qualified. So in Australia, there's a bit of a, a difference between nutritionists and dietitians. Um, without going too deep into it, you, the term nutritionist and even the term dietitian isn't actually regu- regulated. So Millie, if you would like to call yourself a nutritionist, you can do that, <laughs> which is obviously quite problem. Can, but seriously. Yeah, absolutely. That- like if you want to do that, go right ahead because no one will stop you. And that's wow. a problem. So, you it's know, you, problem. yeah. So the, the phrase accredited practicing dietitian, that is regulated. And so okay. that means you have to have done a specific university course in order to do it. Mm. So accredited practicing dietitians are also considered nutritionists, but not all nutritionists will go on to become an accredited practicing dietitian. That's not to say that all nutritionists, you know, we shouldn't go and see them, but when we're sort of working with nutritionists, I really recommend, you know, people who've done like sort of a university qualified degree that's lasted a minimum of three years. So I'm often kind of talking about the the time someone spent studying it. So to become right. a dietitian, I had to do my three year undergrad in exercise science and nutrition. And then I went on to do my 18 months master's course. So it's very strict. Whereas there are other nutrition courses which last six weeks. Um, and that is a massive, massive problem in yeah, our industry. Yeah, there's no way you're going to get the knowledge and no. the content that you got in all those years Absolutely. in a six-week course. It's just not possible. Yeah, and when you're training to become an accredited practicing dietitian, you have to do a lot of hardcore science. So you're more able to kind of look at something and know the science that underpins it and be able to really individualize it to the person. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I'm talking – I really think the length of the qualification and, you know, was it sort of university level. And then from an eating disorder perspective, I would really be checking that they have experience in eating disorders because so there's – So important. Yeah, absolutely. Because, like, you know, I love dietitians. I am one. But there is quite a big difference between someone who has trained in eating disorders versus someone who has not worked with eating mm. disorders. So that's also another thing to consider. You and I both use social media as a mm-hmm. platform to disseminate recovery-focused content, and we know how powerful it can be if it's used correctly, but we are also acutely aware of its potential to have a detrimental effect. What would your advice be to listeners on using social media in recovery? Do you have any recommendations or any accounts for people to follow? Okay. I think it's another one, like anything that makes you feel bad unfollow it like you just need to keep cultivating social media cleanse yes exactly like be ruthless and that means like even if there's people who are positioning themselves like even if you thought I was you know not positive to you in some way I'd be like great unfollow me because like ultimately it's about the individual finding what's right for them um I think following again like more reputable people so like you know, people who've been really working in the space for a long time. So potentially like recovery coaches, I'm thinking like yourself, I'm thinking Mia. Yes. Um, you know, thinking dietitians who really talk about specializing in eating disorders. And often you'll see it in their bio, mm. you'll see like Megan Bray and then underneath it, it's going to say eating disorders, health at every size. Psychologists, the same thing. You want to see that in their bio, they're talking about eating disorder recovery, ideally health at every size. Yes. Um, what I often 
encourage is like if you find someone, just then go and follow who they've tagged because if you find kind of one really good source, you can then, you know, roll on from that. Um, You asked me about specific recommendations and now I'm not going to have any. I really like Ashley Bennett, the body image therapist. Yes, Um, she's wonderful. She produces some truly incredible content. Um, You know, I'm really biased towards like dietitian safe here in the Sutherland, the mindful dietitian. Um, But what I would say is if you start with a couple of those, um, just, just go on from there. Look at who they follow. Look at who's tagged in their posts. Just go from there. Perfect. What is the most valuable thing that your eating disorder journey has taught you? Oh, resilience and grit. Like I now think that there is nothing in my life that would ever stop me from achieving what I want to achieve. I don't believe that if I put my heart and soul into it, I truly believe that I would be able to put in the time and the dedication and I would have the grit and the resilience to make that happen. I feel exactly the same. Yeah, I you know, like I, having an eating disorder is not fun, but I am truly grateful for everything that it gave me. And I, I know if I had the choice to kind of undo it and never have that experience, I actually would keep it um, because it's done so much for me. I can't believe at my age that I've spent this many years in therapy <laughs> and, you know, done this much personal development. Um, I think it's put me in a really good place for the rest of my life. So I'm grateful to it. Yeah, I'm really grateful for my journey too. In your opinion, what are the best ways people can support someone who's going through an eating disorder? Um, Get a team around that person. Like I just think eating disorder recovery is not a one-person job. You need to have lots of people providing support from both ends. Like Mm. the individual needs lots of different avenues for support. But if you're the person supporting, it's just not – sustainable if you're the only person providing it takes a village it does it really does that's a it's a great way to put it um so linking in with you know yeah whether it's a dietitian psychologist gp um maybe a psychiatrist recovery coach potentially group programs um like you know eating disorders queensland down in brisbane they have their peer mentoring program they have other groups we know up here on the coast there's groups through and dead as well. So it's ultimately getting connected in a recovery orientated community. From the individual perspective, I think it's really important to be non judgmental, um, even if you don't get it. Like you don't need to understand what it's like to live with an eating disorder, but really try and be non judgmental. Really try and just be curious. Like tell me about what it's like to live with an eating disorder. Mm. How does that make you feel? What was that experience like for you? Like I often encourage people to use a lot of open-ended questions um, and get your own help if you need it. Like if you're finding that it's really um, emotionally challenging for you to see your loved one in such an amount of pain, it's really important for you to also go and get your own support. So whether that's through a psychologist or making sure you're broadening your friendship circle as well Um, because like you say, it takes a village and recovery can take a really long time. So we need to make sure people aren't on the road to burnout because otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to keep up steam for as long as we need to in order to support people all the way there. Absolutely. Mm. Now, finally, Mm -hmm. what words of wisdom do you have for our listeners, especially those brave warriors who are still fighting away in the trenches every day to find freedom from their eating disorder? I know it sounds very cheesy, but I would say never give up. You know, like every day, every meal, in fact, is a new opportunity to beat the eating disorder or to challenge the eating disorder. So, you know, I don't know if you just had a really difficult meal or you just engaged in some eating disorder behaviors, but you have the opportunity, you know, very shortly to try again Um, and try again and try again and try again. And ultimately, it's all of those little moments of trying again that tend to add up to recovery. I love that. And I just think you're amazing. Everything that you do in this space, (laughs) I just so respect and admire. And you're so passionate about what you do. And I think that that comes through in everything that you do. Um, And I cannot thank you enough for joining me here today and sharing lots of words of wisdom. And I know it will help so many, so many people out there. Thank you. I, you know, I'm very grateful that you invited me to be on this because you know the eating disorder community certainly 
has changed since you've come onto it. I think we should all be very grateful for the amount of airtime that eating disorders now get in the broader media and you should be very proud of the work that you've done. Oh, thank you. This is the End Eating Disorders podcast, brought to you by Lockaway Self Storage and Podspot. Your financial support will save lives. Donate at ended.org.au. I always used to think, like, how can people not hear what's going on in my head? 